Hello, and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. And now, your host, Norbert Strapler, the CEO of Sync Spider. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops podcast. My name is Norbert and I'm today talking to Dennis, who is a SaaS owner himself, a great product, XAI, uh, scheduling productivity software. Um, but uh, why do I tell you, Dennis, tell us a bit about yourself. I will spare you the four-hour seminar on how fantastic we are. But the oh, we have time. We have time. No problem, Dennis. <laughs> This took a left turn uh, very early. So uh, two bullets uh, to that. One, I am uh, sadly uh, getting older, but this is my fifth venture. So I've spent the last 24 years doing startups. So oh, wow. four ventures before this, spent about five years on each. And we are now on the second bullet, about five years plus into this particular venture that tries to take this manual process of getting you and me together on some Wednesday at one o'clock at my office into a software process. And the way we do that is through standard calendar pages on the internet, but also through this unique piece of IP where you can use our email agent, simply email scheduler at X.ai and say things like, hey, can you get me, Tim and Suzanne together on 200 Broadway for an hour and a half first week of January? Make Mm -hmm. Tim optional. And that is certainly where we are uh, distinct and uh, think we're off to a good start. If anything, we're still alive. So if you're a startup and you're alive, you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Um, what, what makes you different? Um, I, I know that there are a lot of uh, calendar tools like Calendly or Book Like a Boss. Um, what makes you different? A few things I would say. One is that we try to see ourselves as a scheduling engine. So go connect all your calendars, apply all your preferences. And now my job is to help you extract availability and give that to people. That, of course, you can do in the simplest of ways, as you alluded to, share a URL. But the one part where we're very distinct is that you can email me and describe in natural language, even my funny Danish English, and say what you want. Nobody does that. I said, nobody can receive an email and say, get you and me together for 45 minutes at my office next week with Ling as optional. That is uh, certainly unique. The second part, we are quite anal around privacy. Uh, We're not just Apple at this very moment, but we allow you to really control what you expose to who and when. Sometimes you don't care. Sometimes I do care. I said, I said, don't want to have meetings at 10 p.m. with everybody, but some people I do, right? So yeah. we're very specific about that. Third, we allow you to brand the whole experience. So I want somebody who takes up this product, say Lyft or Spotify, to use it and use it as such an intimate part of the organization that 
they forget that we are the underlying technology because the whole thing is completely white labeled. So that's certainly where I think we are unique. That's cool. That's really, yeah. really a very interesting approach. I, I love it because it's it's great to go and just type an email and 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 let some AI manage my meetings. This is really great. Um, well, you said that you had um, some ventures before uh, XAY AI. Um, how did you first get into the online business? So, I originally wanted to go work for IBM. So I got a computer science degree and my dad, uncles, cousins, and what have you are all entrepreneurs. So I knew very early on that I did not want to be an entrepreneur because I've seen how hard it is. So I just wanted to go to work at IBM, sit at my desk back home in Denmark, be off by four o'clock, have my seven weeks of summer vacation and be jolly. However, that didn't... Uh, work out. So the company which I worked for in college, I did game development, went uh, bankrupt. And I ended up acquiring the assets from that company and thought, you know what? Uh, let me see if I can extract a few money. So I ended up selling it shortly after that. And I made what I thought was a lot of money between you and me. In hindsight, it wasn't. But back then, right out of college, I thought I've kind of won the lottery. But I still wanted to kind of work for IBM. So On June 1st, 96, I took the money I've just earned, put it into a new internet startup that did analytics. If you want to do internet startup at any point during the last 50 years, do it in the mid-90s. So that's when we started. <laughs> and I ended up selling that company on the right side of the dot-com boom. So I, so I sold it in April 2000. So wow. as the market went up, when we hit the top, I sold. And then... I was kind of in the game, right, for where, you know what, let's not go work for IBM. I'll just go work on the next venture from here. And then uh, I've been at it uh, pretty much uh, without any room in between ventures since then. Wow, that's, that's huge. Um, and and a, long, a long history in internet business. Um, yeah. Now, uh, as most of our listeners are, are ops geeks, so um, they, 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 they focus on operations. I think we should also switch to operations. Um, obviously, XAI can help streamline calendar booking appointments for customers, but how else do you streamline your operation internally? You're, you're absolutely right. And we can use this as a, uh, as a good example. So for many, if not most people, The go-to task management system when they arrive in the morning is their inbox. Yeah. Saying, well, here we go. 8.30 a.m., let's get to it. And you look at that inbox. Well, the sad, funny, tragic thing is that if you look at your inbox and then you look at the seven bullets in your offer letter when you got hired, say you got hired as an SDR or EA or product manager or recruiter, whatever that might be, look at what they hired you to do. Then look at your inbox. Well, they were supposed to match perfectly. Well, if you're a recruiter over at Spotify, recruit. If you're an SDR over at Lyft, go sign up some businesses. Well, that inbox tends to not rhyme with what you were hired to do because there are all sorts of fluff in that inbox. Some of that fluff, we can use us as an example, is 
getting two people together, Fluff, aka setting up a meeting. If you're an SDR, you might do 30 calls a week. You still have to arrange those calls. Now, it's a good little litmus test for what am I still doing manually that I should probably figure out a way to do automatically or semi-automatically. And you and me have had many moments in life where it went from highly manual to just disappearing. Let's pick another analogy, which is not me selling my tool here. So you and me are old enough to remember that five, six years ago, any new contract that we signed was a send it to me, I print it, I go to the <laughs> printer, I sign yeah. it, I scan it, I send it back. Hell, I'm old enough to remember that I went to FedEx and I FedExed you the contract. <laughs> so that completely disappeared. As in, you and me haven't signed anything on paper the last couple of years. I said, I'm almost kind of confused if people ask me to print it out and sign it. I said, I this is know. this is really 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 old school. I totally need to agree. Uh, fun fact: today I did this, <laughs> but it's an old school company, so everything is fine with them. But I I never seen uh, in the past few um, uh, we, uh, exception is uh, building up a company in Austria, then you really need to print it out and sign it. But uh, typically, you really get um, you get everything via DocuSign or Adobe Sign or what else. Yeah, exactly. So I think. Uh, on the list of good ideas, if you want to start somewhere, you can just go to the desk of your kind of five random employees and say, let's look at what's in your inbox. Let's look at how many of those particular tasks are core to what you were hired to do. I said, I pay you 90K a year to do these tasks. Well, only half of those are in your inbox. What are the other ones? Why are you even working on that? What is it here that is so manual that you are still roped into it? that we can potentially automate. So that's a certainly an interesting one. And many of them aren't kind of difficult. They're just little chores, like input this into Salesforce, set up this meeting, sign that contract, upload this document to this kind of portal, do many of these things that are just admin-like chores that comes attached to most job functions. So that's certainly the first place I would go look if you want to be a little sexy. Look outside of what other people look at. Do your own research. Think for yourself. Now, on the other hand, if I were to uh, pick a few ops items, they're probably more pet peeves. So they're, they're of less value to people listening, I'm most sure. Here's a pet peeve of mine, certainly in ops, which is... Excuse proliferating beyond what you had originally designed. So we're not all Amazon. So many SaaS companies certainly will have very few SKUs. I have three, right? I'm, it's not like I have you know, four million SKUs. I have three. That is it. I got the free edition. I got the individual edition. I got the team edition. That's it. End of SKUs. Now, my job now is to figure out a way to... Uh, take advantage of the few SKUs, what many do in a moment of rush when they want to run either an experiment, a campaign, uh, justify a big sale, is they invent a new SKU. But once you invent a new SKU, you sit with that, not for a moment, not for a week, probably to the end of that particular venture, as in you'll never get rid of it. 
And it is a nightmare that will be an anchor that slows you down as you move forward. So the simplification, certainly, of the SaaS queues is something I'm a huge fan of. Don't do the, we have the uh, Christmas individual edition. Don't turn into AT&T. I said, I'm not even sure what SKU I'm on at AT&T because I acquired it 11 years ago under some circumstances where I have a free data plan that I got grandfathered into over the years. Good on me, but I'm on some SKU now that they can't see Dennis escape from. But that's something you don't want to kind of run with. That's uh, an interesting kind of uh, non-explorative idea on the other side, which is just very specific. And I've done the mistake myself many times. Every campaign is a new skew for where there's a little bit of a, this feature, this discount, this market, these users, that segment. No, never do that. Always stick to the ones you have and figure out what can I apply in the moment that will disappear over time. So that could be a, a coupon that expire in eight months, in a year, in two years, but everything must at all times fall back to a normal I say three SKUs, but if you're another SaaS, you probably have you know, you, no more than a dozen uh, at tops. Well, this is a very interesting approach, to be honest. Um, we have a SaaS ourselves with SyncSpider. Um, and we also try, of course, to keep it very uh, limited with the SKUs that we have. But yeah, I need to agree that we sometimes invent a new SKU. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, but now we I, live, but now we call it add-on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't kid a kidder. So I I've been around for long enough where I know when people sell me. So when my VP of growth will tell me, oh, it's an add-on, it's a module. Uh, this is just an extension to the existing SKU. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, jump into Stripe and see how you are charging our customers. Yeah, but that's uh, I set it up as a distinct one. That's called the SKU. So uh, don't try to sell me. I've been, I've been around for long enough when I know I'm being sold here. So <laughs> find another way to solve for that. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of listeners coming from the e-commerce world. Um, yep. uh, what, where do you see parallels between the SaaS world and the e-commerce world? Where I... Th- this is going to sound rude and it's not meant like rude. So e-commerce, uh, this is completely unfair, but let's paint two pictures here uh, from some set of averages. So e-commerce tends to be better at you know, immediate experimentation and campaigning versus SaaS companies. SaaS companies tend to be better at continued service and support, love and care, work in their LTV, because that's how we survive, versus e-commerce can be in this setting where if I just sell the next widget, I'm good, right? So we can both learn something from each other. So if you ask me from my side, my current side of the table, well, e-commerce might conceptually be single transactions, but they're not, right? For where a best case scenario is a repeat customer where you might have paid an unfair amount to acquire him in the first place. But if I fall in love with Sappers, I might buy not one pair of sneakers, but 11 pairs of sneakers over a much longer period of time. Yeah. So if you can somehow adopt 
many of the practices that we put in place on the SaaS side for service, support, account management, that see people not do one thing, because we must see this guy who's on a monthly contract stay happy. Because if he's not happy, I've only made $12. So I must make him so happy that he stays with me for Six yes. months, and he, t- he turns into a three hundred fifty dollar LCD. And I think some of that uh, thinking and some of that uh, willingness to prioritize support, service, and account management, and bucket of love is uh, somehow lost on the e-commerce side. Not entirely. I'm not saying it's black and white. Uh, I'm just painting this kind of very black and white picture of where we could learn from each other. Yeah. Where my campaigning on the flip side, I think sometimes can seem a little uh, naive versus when I see, I don't know, who should I pick in my, uh, my inbox here? Pick some, uh, some brand retailer you are a uh, fan of and they are killing it. I said, I am... Th- I'm this close, right, in, in buying it. I'm only waiting for the next thing, and then they get me, right? And they're just, they planned out December to start on November 10th, and they run it to January 7th. I think I'm doing kind of okay, but not at the same level. Uh, yeah. I, I see it, uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I see it um, in, in, in a lot of interviews that I had before with uh, Shopify store owners, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of them use um, a, a tool called Clavio. The Clavio, which is an email marketing tool, and I think it is um, it is one step to what we uh, in, in in the SaaS world um, we we also use those onboarding sequences and email sequences, and we're not just getting someone in, signing up, and then um, make a purchase, and then they're gone. We keep frequently posting them, not in a newsletter mode, but more in a guiding mode, like uh, showing the people release notes, showing the people how they could use the tool better, make the tool better. And I think if store owners really go there and, 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 and make such email sequences um, related to products they sell, um, how you could clean them up, how you could better use them, how to make something new out of the product they purchased, um, then you can easily do an upsell or a new sale of another product um, while we just keep the people in a lifetime uh, mode so that they stay with us before they go to the competitors. And I think the, a way to describe uh, what you just said is that, and again, uh, before people uh, go bananas in the, uh, in the comments and say, Dennis, you're full of shit. Uh, this is all just a black and white portrait for where we're all kind of uh, more gray, of course. But if you think about it, uh, you certainly see retailers being more uh, ad hoc driven versus you see SaaS uh, companies like ours being more event driven. So any one of my emails are mostly programmatic, meaning that they are event driven. So an event triggers and a stream from one to many emails gets kind of uh, set up and goes out. That could be that uh, you signed up it could be that you viewed a premium page. It could be that you tried to use a feature. It could be that you used a feature, you succeeded. It could be that another colleague of yours signed up. As in, it's very event-driven and very programmatic versus kind of campaign-driven and creative. And I have an idea. 
and let's send this out to this particular segment. Yep. I would say one of the things that translated easily, certainly to retailers, that is completely event-driven is uh, many things, of course, but one of them that we all uh, know about is the kind of the abandoned cart. Abandoned cart, yeah. That, that's a very kind of event-driven, but that is one of those that we know and recognize. But if I go in and look at, you know, we use custom IO, doesn't matter, it could be anything uh, that you want to use, but we have you know, dozens upon dozens programmed on particular events, schemed out on you know, what they receive, when and why. Not as in, hey, what could we do uh, second week of December? No, that's all just based on how they use the product. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, I, I love, I really love that setting up such email sequences <laughs> and new events. So if, if there is a new idea, uh, we're all flipping around and, uh, and see how, how we can implement this because it's really, um, it's, it's so much value for, for SaaS companies to have, um, a good set of emails and, and good messages that you can send out at specific moments. But it's also difficult to not overload, um, the inbox of a user. Uh, so you need to be very careful. <laughs> there, there's a uh, yeah. there's a bell curve here of sorts for where if you send no emails, well, you're probably less likely to succeed. If you send a thousand emails, you're probably less likely to succeed to succeed to find some sort of dramatic number. So in that, you need to figure out where is that inflection point for where I make the most of the finite set of attention that I have, which is not infinite. So you need to figure out what is that. We've certainly, uh, I think when we started, erred on the side of sending too few. And then as we saw more and more positive outcomes of adding, we kept adding. And I think at some point we flipped to the other side. And I think we've now found some sort of equilibrium. But we also tried to kind of figure out which particular segment you're in, where some segments can consume more information than others. Um, and it also depends on where in their kind of customer journey they are. Dennis, this is really very, very interesting. Um, tell me a bit, who has taught you the most about operations in your career? That's a very good question. <laughs> It's... There's, I think there's two types of people who will, everybody will teach you something if you listen mm -hmm. again, but you can find uh, two types. There are people which you don't know, you'll probably never know, but you read one of their books or something similar and you took something away from it. And then there's your kind of intimate friends who you dare open up to on all of your flaws and you can work the whiteboard in the most honest way and you get some sort of conclusion with them. So those are at each end of the kind of spectrum. And uh, I will certainly pick perhaps my first co-founder who I was right out of college-ish. He was 10 years into his career. So anybody who's 10 years ahead of you would have picked something up along the way. Uh, and he came from a kind of... MBA finance background. I came from a CS background. So we were very kind of different, which was great. Uh, so Klaus certainly taught me a ton, which I picked up and used later in my career. Now, 
Then, uh, and I just use that along the way. And I would say, yes, but another one which I work with at those kind of very early years. And many times early in your career, that's where you know, other people can kind of help mold you into who you will be in the future. It's uh, almost like uh, plenty of those studies that will suggest that you're really the average of your five closest friends. Uh, and I turned into perhaps the average of those first set of co-founders and entrepreneurs that I worked with. Uh, they happen to be you know, super good, honest, ethical people, perhaps more by luck and random. Uh, so they taught me a lot. I think on the other side, if I were to pick something which you know people can't call up my personal friends from 20 years ago, but on the on the other side, I'll give you a a few, I'll give you three books that people can pick up uh, that are not in the usual kind of uh, yep. go read uh, zero to one or the hard thing about the hard thing. So all those books that we all read, which are good and fine, I would uh, suggest uh, The Narrow Road by Felix Dennis. He's a rude, obnoxious British entrepreneur who's probably not a good human being. And he says so himself. But he writes a very good story about the value of your equity. So many people, certainly in this day and age, will find it very easy to surrender their equity. Eh, I'll sign up for Techstars. That goes 7%. Ah, I'll do a seed round. That goes 20%. Ah, I'll do a second seed round. That's going another 20%. Ah, I'll do the A round. That goes another 30%. Click, click, click. But I had four co-founders, so I started out with 25% to begin with. And then all of a sudden, you're an employee. And you didn't really notice because you got diluted down to the degree for where what you have now is an option so he's very aggressive on just general commentary about if you surrender a single share, you do so with purpose. That is an interesting book. Uh, two, uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. The book itself is, in, is a very easy read. It's a single setting. It's kind of like a Christmas book. You know, a cup of cocoa, you read it in three hours. And you laugh pretty much, you know, throughout the book until you get to the end. First of all, you're super surprised there's anything called Nike today because there's just so many moments where that company should have uh, went completely tits up. However, in the last few pages, he doesn't say so outright. So his son dies, uh, which is beyond sad and something, you know, none of us can kind of imagine, especially if you have kids. But he asks somewhere in between the lines, again, without saying it so uh, outright, whether it was worth it. As in, I spent 40 years to get to here. Was it worth it? As in, should I have just spent more time with my people that I loved, who loved me? And sometimes we should not forget why we're doing something. Whether that is a startup, uh, some uh, aggressive form of entrepreneurship, but don't forget why we're doing it. It is very much possible uh, to kind of you know, do things with your family, have fun, and do a startup. So that's the second book. The last one, uh, in closing, I would pick would be uh, the autobiography by Mike Tyson. Okay, yeah. That is... Uh, 
first of all, you are surprised that he's alive, uh, but it's a good story about who to trust. If you start a new venture, uh, there'll be plenty of people that you should probably not trust outright. Plenty of people who will be involved in your venture where you will not have the same motives or the same idea of the destination. And if you read that book where a single individual will make, pick a number, nobody really knows, but let's call it $300 million over a short, uh, reasonably short time period. It took him out of school uh, very early on, early in high school, as in, and take him you know, out of the city and train him every day. And then you give him $300 million. Everybody wants to extract that from him. And you can trust nobody. It's a sad book, really, when you, uh, you read it, because in the end, there wasn't anybody there. But it's a good story and reminder of, well, so you signed that A round. They gave you $8 million. These people might not be your friends. They're probably not evil, but they're certainly not your friends. And you should have that in mind as you kind of go structure this particular company. These people who I put on my board, they're not your friends. They have a fiduciary responsibility to this company. So don't confuse these things. So those are three books, uh, if you ask me. Who talks? Great. Um, it's, it's awesome. It's really a great uh, 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 explanation as well about the books. So you, you gave good, good input for that. And we will link those books, of course, in, in the blog post. Uh, so you can uh, click it and, and, and be there. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Dennis. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Um, very enthusiastic and, and I, I, I learned a lot and especially discussion about uh, similarities and parallels between SaaS companies and e-commerce uh, was very interesting. Both are after the lifetime value of a customer. I think this is the outcome. We are both after the lifetime value of a customer in SaaS, it is the subscription. In e-commerce, it is the purchase after the purchase after the purchase. Both have the same jobs to do. Engage the customers, give them great support um, and, and, and a huge quality um, to, to make them buy again um, at our software. Um, and for us in the SaaS world, it's uh, not to lose the customers so that we have enough of the yeah high tickets that we pay for acquiring them. So... Thank you very much and uh, good luck. Thanks much for having me. Stay safe. And um, if people want to find me on the internet, I'm everywhere under Dennis Mont. And I highly encourage, that's the salesperson in me, to go visit X.ai, give it a world that's a free edition. So I don't need to extract your money uh, on day one. Cheers. Cheers. And that's it for this episode of the Ecom Ops Podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for Ecom Ops Podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.